Amen. Thank you. Woo, have a seat. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. How are you? I'll take this off. Uh, Got to get myself set up here. Good to see everybody. Um, I wish I could not wear glasses. I keep taking them off because they're uncomfortable to me, but I have to have them. Anyway, thank you, you guys. That was wonderful. Um, I uh, want to pray before we get started. It is Palm Sunday, if you didn't know that. I hope you knew that, right? It's Palm Sunday. Let me pray before we get started. Father, we thank you, and we celebrate today. We celebrate your inauguration as king. We, we celebrate the fact that you came into that city all those years ago and knew exactly what you were doing, and that's something that we're going to talk about today. We think about all the details of that story. We think about how familiar we are with our own stories, with our own lives, and how sometimes we can't see clearly those details of your story or what exactly it all meant. And we pray that you would give us insight into that, that you would shed light on all that, and that you would remind us of how important all those details are, and what they say to us, and what they say to the world around us. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So Palm Sunday is the celebration of Jesus entering Jerusalem as, as king, riding on the back of a donkey, right, uh, at the beginning of Passover. Uh, and it's recorded in all four Gospels, so it's kind of an important story. And it's, it's a prophecy that's fulfilled in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, Righteous and having salvation is he, uh, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Kind of redundant there, right? So, yeah. Anyway, but, um, you know, you think about that time, and I, I, I want to say again, I've been watching that, Kim and I have been watching that show, The Chosen, on YouTube, and it just, a, yeah, just, it's just a wonderful show. They've done a really good job, and it just kind of makes everything so... I don't know, real. I, I, I don't know what else to say. But, it, you know, when I think about stories like this, I think about that kind of playing out in front of me or me being a part of that crowd. And that's where your imagination can really kind of put you into the story. And I, maybe, maybe we all need to do that. Because, you know, for every pastor uh, doing a, a, an Easter sermon, a Christmas, Christmas sermon, things like that, it's a little bit, it's, it's like, you know, what am I going to say different? <laughs> How can I say this thing different? We all have a little bit of anxiety when these holidays come up. But, um, and that's the reason I kind of went in a little different direction today. I hope it, I hope you understand that. But, um, so, you know, we, you you put yourself back in there and there are whispers all throughout that crowd, maybe not even whispers, but outright, <laughs> you know, open talk about him as Messiah or Savior. And that's what Messiah really means, a Savior. And they were rampant throughout that crowd. That's what they were talking about. And, you know, people are excited and they're, they're gathered along the roads and Exodus was on their minds. You know, they're thinking about, uh, they hoped that this Messiah would free them from Roman oppression, just like they had uh, been delivered from Egypt years and years before. Um, and that imagery would not go unnoticed. Jesus on that donkey, it's sort of a, con- a conquering king riding into a city. And on a donkey is a symbol of coming in peace, but still conquering nonetheless. Right? So people are shouting. 
You know, they're laying down their cloaks on the road before him. They're waving palm branches. We never get the palm branches at 6. I don't know why I don't order those. I probably should. But it would be fun to wave them around in here. But um, all of that stuff, you've got to understand that all of that stuff is symbolic of of welcoming their Savior King, right? The, The hopes in him were not at all vague that day in that crowd, as they shouted the words of Psalm 118, it says, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So it's good news that they're excited about this. So the Messiah had come to bring peace and freedom from Roman oppression. That's what was, that, that, that was their expectation. But that was not necessarily his intention, at least in the immediate sense. That was their expectation, that he would be sort of a warrior king releasing them from Roman oppression. But Jesus came for very different reasons, it seems like, or or maybe more comprehensive reasons. So what did Jesus come to save them from? Well, Christianity 101 says sin and death. We know that. That's uh, that's the easy answer. But today I wanted to focus on something else. The gravest result of sin is eternal separation from a holy God. The gravest result of sin is eternal separation from a holy God, which we know as hell. Right? Uh, you know, I'd, been th- I'd bet the rent money <laughs> that, that you know, most, if not all of you, have never once heard a sermon on the topic of hell. I bet you you go back in your history of going to church, you probably have never heard a sermon on hell. And there are reasons for that. But it's a central aspect to Christian belief. It is necessary to understanding faith and salvation, but pastors are loath to preach on it. We are very reluctant to preach on it these days. And we know Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We also know that we're saved from God's wrath, that the wages of sin is death, but the, you know, we're, we're saved uh, through the, work, uh, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, you know, uh, which we celebrate next week, right? We, Romans 6.23. We know all that. But the cross, I've got to remind you, the cross isn't just justice overridden or justice ignored. It is justice satisfied. That's a very important point because everybody's talking about justice these days. I don't think they half of them know what they're talking about. The cross isn't justice overridden. It is justice satisfied. And the problem is, here's the problem. Not everybody out there in the world sees themselves as sinful and in need of a Savior, and they they only really see other people as wrong, or other people as sinful, right? And in their pride, they want to be the ones to enact what they regard as justice on other people's lives, and they are not satisfied until they draw blood and they destroy a life. Think about the cancel culture right now out there. But God is different. And rightly so. God desires repentance and reconciliation. God desires repentance and reconciliation. And He willingly, willingly goes to the cross to make that possible for anybody that would humble themselves before Him. And that, by the way, 
has a tendency to reconcile people to each other as well. So isn't repentance better? Isn't repentance and reconciliation better? It it is. Rather than destroying somebody, only driving their rage deeper to only come out in some other way later, that doesn't help. Isn't grace and mercy leading others to repentance better than retribution and vengeance? It is. But, here's the problem, and, and wrap your brains around this. Grasp this, own it, realize that, that it, it is true. There, some will always refuse until the day they, they stop breathing, right? They will always refuse to submit to God's way of doing things. And that, the end result of that is his, his real and necessary wrath, and it is a calculated wrath. It's not willy-nilly just, you know, you know burning things down. It is, it is his real and necessary wrath in dealing with sin and evil. And that is the only way true justice is going to happen. Hell has its place, in other words. Even in this exciting Palm Sunday, when you celebrate all the Messiah coming into the world, hell has its place. Remember that. Now, reasonable people, mature people, don't have a bloodlust. We really don't, do we? None of us do. We don't want to see people punished. We, we, we want to see them repentant. We want to see them restored. We want to see everybody reconciled. We want peace. We don't like the idea of hell. And I... I would venture that God does not like the idea of hell either. But our dislike of something does not negate its necessity. Let me say that twice. Our dislike of something does not make it unnecessary. Hell is unpopular right now. And one of the reasons is that there's a very infectious, progressive gospel being uh, sort of seeping into pulpit and tainted sermon and literature and worship songs, making that all fraudulent imposters, you know, you know, not really true gospel teaching and not truly true gospel worship at all. And it's my conviction that we have to start guarding ourselves a little bit better in these ways. Because as lies are, right, the progressive gospel is so alluring. It makes so much logical sense, it seems. But the problem is that those like myself that fight against it are all, all automatically labeled as angry, fundamental bigots or worse. While those that have just given over, given themselves over to the cultural na- narrative, considering themselves superior, superior in intelligence than all the rest of us, they feel it only right to sort of li- release their theological grip on archaic notions of divine punishment and eternal separation from God. Why would God ever do that? God is love. Richard Rohr, a Franciscan friar, author and, in my opinion, and I'm right in this, a heretic, and I don't understand why the Catholic Church does not excommunicate the guy. Now, if you think I'm being harsh, go read Jesus' words to the Pharisees. Go read Paul's words to other people that were bringing this stuff into the church. We need to be harsh sometimes. 
It's not unchristian to be harsh in our criticisms. Right? But he says this about the concept of hell. Now listen to this. He says, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, but this cultural God sure doesn't. Now he's talking about the God of the church. The God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament. Right? And he says, Jesus tells us to forgive 70 times, 7 times. But this God doesn't. Instead, this God burns people for all eternity. Most humans are more loving and forgiving than such a God. We've developed an unworkable and toxic image of God that a healthy person would never trust. Why would you want to spend an hour in silence, solitude, or intimacy with such a God? Now, I want you to notice, Roar sounds so loving, so logical, and so correct. But in one quote... He has deconstructed Scripture and placed himself as the authority over it. That's what he's done. You've got to start thinking about this stuff because it matters who you listen to. Right? He flies in the face of thousands of years of agreed-upon scriptural interpretation and authority. His ideas are sort of like the floodwaters that wash away any solid foundation. They carry us out into the desert and they leave us there as they dry up under the hot sun of biblical scrutiny. He is not being honest with you. And many others out there are not. And he is right only about one thing. He has developed an unworkable and toxic image of God, but it is not from the Scriptures, and it is not from the church. Notice, I want you to notice, the progressive Christian begins with the self What the self feels is right, and and the God-breathed scriptures are not their guide whatsoever. Whatsoever. I don't trust myself that much. I hope you don't. And this has become to the point now, in the past couple decades, that the word sin is no longer useful in the progressive Christian movement. It's negative terminology from ages past, just old language like rust on old metal. A position held by those that have long since given up on scriptural authority, erasing, as they do so, they erase any need for salvation, or at least they think they do. Now, according to them, we are just misunderstood victims in need of further coddling by a soft, soft-handed, you know, Loving God who understands our pain. We have no guilt whatsoever. As a matter of fact, God is redefined to be only loving as humans see love and define love themselves. He's all accepting. He's never condemning. He's, 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 he doesn't ever condemn anyone or anything. He doesn't judge. He's kind. He's understanding. He's tolerant of all things. He's all-inclusive of all behaviors and all lifestyles and all things. doesn't matter. And when you redefine salvation, you have to redefine God. When you redefine all the terms of Christianity, you have to redefine God. When you redefine God, you erase any need of salvation. At least you think you do. But you're going to find out different in the end. And underlying all these errant thoughts is the destructive concept of universalism. It's extremely destructive. The idea that all people will be saved and that everybody will spend eternity with God no matter what, from Hitler to your grandmother. 
It's also known by other terms. Universal reconciliation, universal salvation, Christocentric universalism, which Nadia Bowles-Weber calls it, another heretic, don't ever read her writings. I I hate to say that. If if I was ever tempted to have a book burning, I'd burn her books. It is so insidious right now. And people are just being drugged away. But some of, these, some of these ideologies consider that everybody will eventually come to Jesus in the end. But we never talk about sin. We never talk about justice or anything like that. See, in these views, God is just sort of a cosmic hoarder piling people up on each other, until, you know, never dealing with the dirt of their sin until the floor of his kingdom just caves in and it's all condemned. That's not a loving God at all. It's not loving at all. Universalism makes, remakes God into the image that we want him to be while utilizing all the same terminology like justice and mercy and grace, etc., but without them actualized. Without any of them actually coming into reality. And if we could pull the mask off that image, it would be Satan behind it. It really would. And I believe in Satan, by the way. And progressive pastors and leaders and authors and theologians are doing their best to champion this message. They really are. Scholar Michael McClyman in an interview titled How Universalism, the Opiate of the Theologians, Went Mainstream, says this, It's the way that we would want the world to be. But it's not the way the world is, by the way, right? It's the way that we would want the world to be. Some imagine that a more loving less judgmental church would be better positioned to win new adherents. Yet perfect love appeared in history, and what happened? And he was crucified. Perfect love already showed up. He walked around. He walked. In, he marched into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey 2,000 years ago or so, and we killed him. And we killed him because we are sinful beings. We are. We are bent towards evil and not towards love. We are bent towards selfishness and not selflessness. Which is why we need Jesus' atoning work on the cross to do spiritual heart surgery on every single person in this earth. Nobody gets away from that. See, hell's not reserved just for the Hitlers of the world. Plenty of sweet moms and grannies dressed up their little children and baked cookies and sent them off to the Nazi youth meetings. Sin bubbles up in each one of us daily in a myriad of ways. Just cut us off in traffic, you might see it. Show us a picture of Biden or Trump, depending on your politics, you might see it. Right? The hatred in our hearts. The vitriol in our hearts. The truth is, to submit to scriptural authority is to walk with Jesus. And Jesus claimed that himself. To walk in scriptural authority is to walk with Jesus. And in that scripture, in the Bible, we have a God who is able and willing to judge sin and condemning it, you know, in the end, and those refusing to repent of it to hell. And believe it or not, that is actually the loving, healthy God, not the other way around. 
Would I be a loving parent if my kid ran out in the middle of traffic and said, hey, go ahead? No, I would not be. Right? Because human desire, just driven along by its own sinfulness, is a destructive juggernaut. We see that every day. A God who plucks the repentant up from, from a burning fiery ring and places us on solid ground, empowering us with his spirit, is actually the God that loves. God never seems to force his will upon humanity, right? But he offers himself as the true answer to our real deep need until the point that he eventually closes the door on that invitation and that door closing is hell. That's what we're talking about. And it will come about. There is hell on earth, for sure, so to speak, right? And in our terminology, you know, every moment we choose to call what is wrong, right, or evil, good, and and act on those things in that way, that is a foretaste of hell, where human desire and sin fully reign. But I don't think we understand what that's really going to look like. We don't have category for it yet. Because all people right now, believe it or not, whether they would admit it or not, live under God's common grace. They do. The only reason any one of us is alive is because God allows it and wills it. The only reason we can experience the sun on our face is because God brings it about. The only reason we experience anything good in this world is because God creates it and wills it. And given next week is Easter the story of Christ's resurrection and atonement to avoid God's wrath and hell in this world, it's time for this sermon. But I'm probably the only preacher preaching it this morning. Maybe it's not hell which confounds us, really, as much as it is the eternal nature of it. Right? If, if hell were only for a short time, it would be a palatable concept. We get it. It makes sense, right? Oh, we've got to learn a lesson. If it were geared towards instruction and rehabilitation, it would be easier to swallow. If it were only allegory, like people are saying, whew, oh, glad we got, it, we got around that one. But it's not. Hell to many has a, you know, become sort of a cosmic torture chamber fueled with images of Dante's Inferno, a place of regret, where Satan rules forever. You know, he's in his glory right there, baby, right? And everyone gets the same punishment. Although I don't think those things are true. As heaven is actual, and we all say that we believe in heaven if we're following Christ. If heaven is actual, then hell is also actual. It has to be. But we've got to let Scripture inform our thoughts on it, and we have also have to let our will go and say, you know what, we can't understand it, we can't see all the answers to it, and neither do we need to. We need to be obedient to what Christ reveals to us, and that's it. As Alyssa Childers puts it, God's wrath for sin ensures that his followers will not spend eternity coexisting with sin, which universalism would, would do. Through the sacrificial death of Jesus, we are invited into an eternal kingdom that will vanquish sin and death forever. 
That's something we also can't imagine, right? I cannot imagine being side by side with you forever without my desires screwing up your life. My sin screwing up your life. I, my sin is so much a part of me, I don't, I don't know how to live without it. I don't get it. I don't get it. But I don't have to get it. I have to just trust that it's going to, be, it's going to come about. See, hell was not a part of the original creation. When you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you don't see the, the terminology of hell in there. Matthew 25, 41 says it was prepared for the devil and his angels. The New Testament tells us a few things about hell. Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and, and all liars they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is hell. There's a few different images of hell in, in the scriptures. Second Thessalonians 1.9 speaks of everlasting destruction, being shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might forever. Jude 1.7 speaks of the punishment of eternal fire. Uh, Revelations 20.13-15 states that each person will be judged according to what they had done in this life as well as death and Hades, and anyone whose name is not found in the book of life being thrown into the lake of fire. Revelations 14, 9 and 10 speaks of drinking the wine of God's fury and being tormented with burning sulfur. Jesus himself described hell in these ways. He said in Matthew 25, 46, that he speaks of those who don't submit to him as going away to eternal punishment, but that those, uh, the righteous will enter with him in, into eternal life. In chapter 13, verse 50, he speaks of a blazing furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Isn't that a great uh, phrase? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's such a visual image, isn't it? But think about, and we're going to come back to this in a minute, think about what you think about when you hear weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Uh, Mark 9.43, he refers to a place where the fire never goes out. Mark 9.48, he refers to the worms that eat them that do not die and the fire that is not quenched. And he's quoting actually the very last verse of Isaiah chapter 66, I think there. Matthew 8.22 and 25 all talk about this, this separate place of outer darkness being cut off from God where there is, again, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this outer separation, right? This lostness, imagery of worm and darkness and fire and all this stuff, all very powerful images which speak strongly to a place of eternal loss and destruction or torment. Now, can fire and darkness reside together? No. These are visual, these are like literary sort of images that we get. Doctors Norm Geisler and Thomas Howe say it well. While hell is a literal place, and see how they say that, not every description of it should be taken literally. Some powerful images of speech are used to portray this literal place. So are people actually going to be burning in a fire for eternity? I don't think so. I like what J.I. Packer says. He says, Hell is the negation of fellowship with the Lord. I don't understand, and you don't understand, and that guy that is across the street over there that doesn't believe in God at all, he doesn't understand what it's like to not have any fellowship with the Lord. Because, like I said, we all reside under common grace. It's, and he continues, it's the negation of pleasure. 
You ever notice if you if you sin long enough, the pleasure of it goes away? It doesn't work. It doesn't continue to work. It actually starts to eat you up. It torments you, right? It's the negation, he says, of any form of contentment. That is torment. The opposite of peace is torment. It feels like worms are eating me up. It feels like I'm burning all the time just because I cannot get any contentment. That is hell, baby. I don't want that. We have no category for this due to God's common grace all experience right now. We can't imagine what it would be like for our sin to have full sway and be cut off completely from the love and the goodness of God. But it will happen. Progressive Christian leaders may say that Jesus never talks about hell, but anybody that reads the scriptures takes the time to read through the gospels, they see that he spoke about it quite often. He warned people of it. Why don't we? Because we're scared. We're scared that people aren't going to like us. We're scared that people aren't going to think we're intelligent enough. Ugh. Tired of it. Tired of it all. Right? Jesus referred to it as Gehenna, the, the Valley of Hinnom, the place where people actually sacrifice their children to the God of Molech. And if you've ever heard me speak on that, it is horrific. What happened there? It was a, a constant fire burning in that valley. And everybody knew what, knew about it. It was a great image. And Jeremiah 19.6 calls it the valley of slaughter, a place which came to be synonymous in people's minds with hell, a place of punishment after final judgment. And it was the best visual image that they had. So the terminology came out of that. And, the, and Jesus used it often. Because it really speaks well, doesn't it? That's hell in which some will spend eternity. I'm not happy about that. God's not happy about that. None of you are happy about that. But the doors of heaven will be shut, with, which is what the parable of the ten virgins uh, teaches in Matthew 25, that some will be locked out of the kingdom when the time comes. And that is followed by two more parables in the very same uh, chapter, parables of the back and, and uh, of the sheep and goats, which all talk about being cast out into outer darkness, separated, shep- separated out, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus clearly taught that there will be eternal life for those that follow him and eternal punishment for others. He'll eventually close the doors of his kingdom forever. Childers states in her book, Another Gospel, which is back there on the shelf if you want to read it, and I suggest you do, that the church has always agreed on three things about hell. We can't actually tell you exactly what it's all going to look like, but we do know three things. Hell's eternal, souls are conscious, and there is torment. Right? And she brings up three misconceptions, which I've already hinted at already, that uh, that we have about hell. Firstly, that people in hell are repentant. That, that the devil's in charge, that Satan's just having a heyday in charge, and that everyone gets the same punishment. You know, when I think of that term, weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think of somebody who's got deep regret. They're crying. They're, no, why didn't I, why didn't I follow Jesus when I got the chance? 
That's what I think, right? That's my natural inclination. But if I applied that to what it actually means in the Scriptures, I would be dead wrong. Speaking about Israel's enemies in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 16, it says, All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth. That's angry, angry language, right? Psalm 37, 12 says, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. That's angry language. Interestingly, the next verse says, But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The doors will be shut. That's what he's talking about. In Psalm 35, 16, David wrote, Like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked, they gnashed their teeth at me. And then in Acts 17, when they're stoning Stephen, they gnashed their teeth and rage at him. It's angry language. This is a picture of people who don't care. They are, they, it's different than someone who is you know, regretting their decisions and missing out on something wonderful. It is ongoing defiance and anger and willful disconnection with God as their king. They do not want that. Hell isn't something that God glories in. It wasn't a part of the original good created order. It's a necessity in which he gives people what they desire. What they desire. Some people actually desire it. I think they're deceived, but they desire it. He won't force his kingship on humanity. It must be an act of our will by grace, through faith, and accompanied by repentance from sin. You can't have the kingdom of God without repentance of your sin. It doesn't work that way. Sin and holiness cannot mix. God can't have sin in his forever kingdom. He is a holy God, which is why universalism is such a farce. So why? It doesn't work in it. If, it. if it were true, it would be hell itself. Because everything just gets in the door. Secondly, we're aware that every single pop culture of, of hell has Satan, you know, just enjoying himself as ruler of the underworld forever. He's got all the souls he needs to torture as long as he wants, right? But that is a false image according to the scriptures. You know, Satan loses in, in the scriptures, right? Matthew 25, 41, as I said, states that eternal fire is prepared for him and his angels. There's no image in scripture at all of a triumphal devil reigning over lost, regretful souls in the afterlife. We get that from old paintings back in, you know, whenever. That's where we get that from. It's not in the scriptures. He himself is sent to eternal separation and to torment himself as a result of all this as well. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, how all that exactly looks, like I've said, nobody knows, but the truth, we do, we can say that Satan is not victorious at all in the scriptures. Not at all. He loses the war. And our third and final misconception is that everyone receives the same punishment. And this is the one that is most unclear and the most confusing to all of us, I think. We've all met that total jerk claiming to be a Christian, right? You're like, oh, how did he get in, right? And we've also met the really nice non-Christian who is 
total atheist that denies Christ, but seems like a really loving, community-oriented person. There's lots of those out there. But we have to remember that Scripture teaches salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, just, or 1 through 10, 1 through 11, just go and memorize that. Really great passage to memorize. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and, and like the wind of our sins, like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Now, some people would say, oh, that's really negative to think of yourself that way. No, I'm so valued. Sin was not a part of the original creation, but I fell into it. And I am so valued that God came into my reality and walked this earth and died on the cross and rose from the grave for me. I have great value in the eyes of the gospel. Just because I admit that I am sinful to the core, that is not a negative thing about me as a person. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We are awakened to it. Now, although the Scripture teaches that we'll know them by their fruit, Matthew 7, you'll know somebody by their fruit, you know, what they produce in their life, so to speak. We can't judge whether someone is totally has totally given themselves over to Christ or not. I don't know that. I don't know if Moses back there is really giving himself over to Jesus. I only trust what he says to me. Right? We look for life change in people, but life change takes time, doesn't it? It really does. All we can do is believe and trust somebody. And we can listen for the right things and you know, all that stuff. And we can guide and, and, and direct people as, as they grow. But if someone claims to be something other than a Christian, if they deny Jesus outright, which plenty of people do, I know that they rejected Christ, and I know that I'm responsible to witness to them. I'm, I'm responsible to at least pray for them, if not try to draw them into the kingdom. And if somebody, and this happens, and it's happened in, uh, in this community... Uh, not in this church, but in this community, if someone claims to be a Buddhist and a Christian, or a Hindu and a Christian, you maybe have met, met people like this, you know, right away, I know they are not a Christian. Right? Because if they were truly a Christian, if they had truly met Christ, Christ doesn't share his kingship with any other false god in the world. They would know that those things cannot simultaneously be true. You cannot be a Buddhist and a Christian, or a Hindu and a Christian, or a Muslim and a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is totally and absolutely exclusive. When God communicates himself, he communicates himself in one way, one way only. He's not, he doesn't have multiple personalities. You cannot come to the kingdom of God. You can't get into heaven by any other path other than Jesus Christ. We've got to start to own that a little bit better. Becoming a little bit more confident in saying that. Not in a mean, jerky way, which you might feel like I'm doing right now, but I'm talking to my brothers and sisters, right? But we need to be more confident in these things. But does some nice atheist, you know, who does a great deal of good in this community get relegated to eternal torment while some jerk Christian gets eternal bliss just for claiming Jesus? Those are hard questions. 
And we can't fully grasp the concepts of heaven and hell, remind you, right, from our vantage point. It just doesn't happen. But we do know that God is not unjust, that God deals with sin in appropriate manners. Jesus said to Pilate in John chapter 19, verse 11, he said, The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Listen to that. Greater sin. In Luke 12, Jesus tells the story of servants receiving various levels of punishment for either willful or ignorant disobedience of the master's will. And then in verse 47 through 48, he says, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with fewer blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Jesus spoke in various degrees of obedience, various degrees of sin. And although we know that sin, our sinful nature, any sin, cuts us off from the relationship with God. In that sense, sin is equal. Right? We know that. But God is not simplistic or unjust. There are varying degrees of punishment. Deal with all things in his appropriate way, and it's none of my business how he does that. He'll do that. He's smart enough to do that. I'm not. In an article uh, in the Washington Post, which Matt sent me this a couple weeks ago, uh, it says liberal, it's titled, liberal, liberal churches are dying, but conservative churches are thriving. And this is in the Washington Post. It says, it was almost 20 years ago... There are reasons why this stuff is happening, right? And we've got to start thinking about the people that are putting stuff out that are are undermining all of our garbage, you know, all of our good stuff, actually. But it it says, it was almost 20 years ago that John Shelby, and I think I'm saying it correctly, Spong, a U.S. bishop in the Episcopalian Church, published his book, Why Christianity Must Change or Die. It was presented as an antidote to the crisis of decline in mainline churches. Spong, a theological liberal, said congregations would grow if they abandoned their literal interpretation of the Bible and transformed along with the changing times. In other words, you do not regard the scriptures as, as authoritative, you know, and, and you just follow culture, right? That we're, we're all evolving and we're all progressing and we're becoming, we're becoming what we should be. B.S. It's B.S. I'm sorry. I can say BS, I just can't say the full thing. But, but he says, transform along with changing times. Spong's general thesis is popular with many mainline Protestants, including those in the United Methodist, Evangelical Lutheran, Presbyterian USA, and Episcopalian churches. Spong's work has won favor with academics too. And so as a result, people like this guy and others that are teaching in our universities or that are pastoring these churches or leading in these churches have just abandoned the scriptures as being anything authoritative and they are paying the price. The problem is that 20 years later, after after his book, as the article indicates, that liberal churches are dying. And it's exactly because they've abandoned the authority of scriptural truth. As a result... All the notions of sin uh, and hell are erased. Rob Bell, a number of years ago, said, oh, we don't need to talk about sin anymore. Sin's not a helpful concept. Rob Bell, silence. Just don't, I don't want to hear you anymore. Right? Tony Jones, Brian McLaren, 
Nadia Bowles, Weber, whatever her name is. All these people, I just, they're, they're nothing but the devil in disguise with their writings. So as a result, sin and hell are all erased and we get to do whatever we want and God gets to redefine into our image of what we really want Him to be. A weak, passive, just loving God who would never tell me that I'm wrong or that I have guilt. That's not helpful. It's not helpful. The end result is either a total abandonment of faith or a wishy-washy universalism which really never delivers on any of these concepts of justice or grace or salvation or mercy. It just makes absolute hell for everybody. It doesn't work. We won't do that at 6-8. I will preach at the face of jail or death the truth of the gospel as I see it and I don't think that I'm being arrogant when I say that because I place myself under the authority of, of the church as a whole that has agreed on these things ever since the, you know, time has gone on, you know, whatever. But it's unpopular. Heaven and hell are both, as unpopular as it is, they are both real and they are both necessary. God is patient. His offer extends for eternal life under King Jesus. And he is king. Make no mistake, the day that he came into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, he laid claim to his kingship, right? He was inaugurated that day. But a kingdom beyond Rome and beyond space and beyond time, uh, encompassing all the world and all of eternity. He is the king of this universe. Nobody else. As Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, at the, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And some will do that from the vantage point of total and absolute reconciliation and peace with God in heaven and others will do that from eternal torment in hell. But they will do it. It just depends on our response to Jesus right now. Hell wasn't a part of the good, the, the good created order in the beginning, but it's reserved for those who refuse to bow their defiant will to Jesus. And if they won't now, why would I think that they would in the future? Why would I think they'd suddenly be repentant later? They're just going to be more angry. And people are angry towards God. Man, try to share the gospel. Sometimes you get some really bad reactions. What would it communicate if God, if he simply looked the other way at all of our self-centered, self-serving sin and allowed it into his kingdom? There'd be no peace in that kingdom. It would not be heaven anymore. It would be hell. If you want to learn any more about this stuff, you can... Uh, there's a book called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity by Alyssa Childers. Again, I said it's in the back. Um, great book. I've been reading it. I just keep rereading some chapters to just get it to ground into my, my psyche. Uh, but there are other books as well. There's a, a book, I forget what band he played in. The guy, you can see him, he's facing us on that, on that shelf. But he, it's about the same kind of stuff. But there's some really good books coming out right now that, that are addressing this stuff because it's, it's that important. So let me pray for us as we, we close this. Father, we thank you.
I pray that uh, uh, all that is Jason would wash away this morning and all that is you would, would shine through. Father, I pray that you would give us uh, a backbone, that you would give us uh, spiritual muscles, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us uh, ownership of your gospel, that you would give us confidence and not fear. Confidence toward us. I pray that you would make us great, effective ministers of your gospel. Not just those people that get paid to do it, to preach it every Sunday or lead churches, but all of us who claim your name, I pray that we would become effective ministers of your gospel. We thank you that you have you have gone to such great extents to, to, to open the door for us to be reconciled to yourself. And we lay down our lives and we confess our sin before you. We ask your forgiveness and we ask you, like David did, to give us a clean and pure heart so that we can serve you well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hello. <laughs>